Oh, it is so good to be together, isn't it? And uh, what a, uh, you know, we're so grateful. God's gifted us with just some amazing servants here in our church with Tim and Ari being able to step in for Pastor Clint. But it sure is good to have Clint back, isn't it? Amen. Love you, Clint. Um, yeah, we got a lot going on, and uh, there's, I, I, I get out this morning, I'm walking to my study down there, and I'm thinking, it's going to take me a few years to be excited about that white stuff, because I spent so much time in western New York, that's all I saw, um, it was like nine months of snow and winter, and uh, so uh, I'm, I'm kind of more like with, uh, with uh, you know, singing about the heat wave, what? I, I had it the first. I had it first service. What's her name? Uh, Diana Ross and the Supremes. Yeah, heat wave. Singing about the heat wave. That's what I'm going for. Um, no, in, in all seriousness, man, we got some tough stuff going on in the world, don't we? And some things to pray about. And you know, this last song, ugh, dude, that is the right response, isn't it? Just to be joyful worshipers and and praising. Um, but we also need to be praying. I. I Yesterday morning, I woke up. I, I got to wake up on my own time. I didn't have my alarm wake me up. So I, I woke up really late, like 6 a.m. And um, I get up, and I, I turn the news on. And, um, and the first thing I saw was this uh, woman in a bomb shelter with her children and a bunch of other families on this big bomb shelter subway or somewhere. And, and she's in tears just crying out to the world, please help us. And man, it just broke my heart. And I know that there's just all kinds of complicated things going on. And, you know, we uh, have all kinds of, um, I mean, they're just another thing to have an opinion about, right? Um, and it's so much deeper than that because people's, people's lives are at stake. And, and uh, so we need to keep praying. And who knows what the long-term repercussions of all this are um, and what kingdoms move to where, but we know that uh, regardless of where uh, Putin and Zelensky and Joe Biden and all the other people are, we'll never unseat Jesus from the throne, and so, and his kingdom will reign forever. So we need to be praying for them. As we do that, um, uh, let's uh, open up to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. And we'll be in verse 31. We'll read to verse 37. It says, And he went down to Capernaum, the city of Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. In the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent! Come out of him! And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. Our merciful God, we submit and surrender to you this morning. God, we give ourselves over to you as we open your word, as we seek your truth for our lives. 
that we might bring you honor and glory. We ask that you lay before us a table of truth that we might be nourished by the knowledge of your good character. God, forgive us of our sins. We have not loved you with our, all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and we have not loved our neighbor as ourself. Lord, forgive us of our sins, both those in which we have been deceived and those in which we have brought upon ourselves. God, we lift up our, our brothers and our sisters around the world to you, those who are in distress, those who are having to make decisions, those missionaries, do we leave or do we stay? Those who are citizens in places that are being attacked and oppressed. Those who are being asked to do things that perhaps they are opposed to doing. God, we lift them up to you. Be present with all of them. Be present in Ukraine right now as we speak. God, we pray that you would speak to us this morning. Teach us to be obedient. Teach us to live in submission to your divine authority. Help us to understand what you have to teach us this morning. And so, Father, we invite your Holy Spirit to inhabit this place and our hearts as we worship you by reading and by studying your holy scriptures, which you have given us to know you by. In the name of the Lord Jesus, amen. On December 6th, 1773, British colonists in Boston, Massachusetts destroyed an entire shipment of tea in the Boston Harbor. And it was in protest of the passing of a tax imposed by the British government. And obviously a bit more complicated than that. But by February of 1775, Britain had declared Massachusetts to be in a state of rebellion, which led to the Battle of Lexington in April and ultimately to the Revolutionary War, in which the colonies declared independence from Britain on July 4th, 1776, and ultimately became an independent nation, the United States of America. Now, I know I've oversimplified that. But our nation has a rich and powerful heritage of fighting for freedom. Rebellion has been the mark of radical social and political movements throughout our history. Slaves were freed after brutal conflict less than 90 years after our nation's founding. Protests have led to voting rights for women, equal citizenship for people of color, and the civil rights of all races in the 60s and 70s. Our people have taken to the streets over injustice, war, concern over world affairs. Our political system relies on robust arguing over present policies. Our Bill of Rights is the most important document in our society today. It restrains government from infringing on the rights of citizens. Our Constitution prevents our government from exercising too much power or authority. In fact, the first two amendments of the Bill of Rights give the people the citizens, the right not to be silenced and the ability to rise up in rebellion against their own nation if tyranny were to creep in. Because of that, it's very difficult for us to understand the concept of authority as it is taught in the scriptures in this free society. Our heritage, our history, our means of governance depends on rebellion. Rebellion is celebrated because that is what has and continues to keep us free. 
Our human nature naturally resists authority, but in the U.S., we have learned to take that even further and placed a heavy importance on it. We use our voices freely and our votes to effectively resist those in our nation who exercise too much authority. And these are good things, but that may be in part the reason why when so many citizens resisted various COVID mandates, we kind of looked like wild renegades to many around the world, right? Rebellion is what has kept the people of the United States free for nearly 250 years. And sometimes we're wrong and sometimes we're right. In fact, as, as a culture, we even push back against the word authority. Our Western values prefer terms like leadership. But leadership, depending on its context, also requires authority. And then we have this unique tension between leadership and authority, and it carries, it carries through to our churches. I've had the privilege many times of discussing this tension with another, a, a number of ministry leaders on and off of this mountain. Our culture holds as one of its highest values the questioning and resistance of authority. But we cannot carry those values into our eternal citizenship. God is less concerned with your vote than with your loyalty. Our political leaders can and often have been very wrong. But our king, Jesus, by his very nature will never be wrong because he is eternal God. We will never have just cause to speak out against him or to take up arms against God's kingdom. Turn with me, if you would, to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. <clears throat> this is the beginning of the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, verses 1 through 7. It says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the Lord, or you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So we can see right here that God's kingdom begins with the absolute authority of Yahweh. Last week we saw Jesus rejected in his hometown of Nazareth. And our section today looks, it looks like that might actually have come before that in time. Because the Nazarenes had probably heard reports about Jesus from Capernaum before he arrived in Nazareth, which is why they were so fascinated by him when he went to teach in the synagogue. So like we said last week, Luke is arranged more thematically than it is uh, as a timeline. So it can jump around a, a little bit and that's okay. So let's look at Luke 4. Uh, we'll start in 30, verse 31. You'll keep your finger there in Luke 4 for the remainder of the morning. Luke 4.31, and he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. So now you can see Galilee there is north of Samaria and Judea in the Palestinian area. 
uh, or, or the uh, Israeli area. It's just the um, area in which Israel was given by God. Last week we saw Nazareth on the southern flank of Galilee. And as you can see, Capernaum is to the northeast on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. So you see the Sea of Galilee there, the little blue piece, and there's Capernaum right there. And if you, if you look at Google Maps, look up Capernaum in Israel and on uh, Google Maps, and you'll see that 2,000 years later, there still isn't much to Capernaum. Uh, it's... There's not much there. Uh, the citizens of Capernaum were townspeople of modest means, generally blue-collar fishermen, tradesmen, merchants. Uh, and there are, these are the people that are being taught by Jesus on the Sabbath. This passage, I think, highlights the value of having trained men teaching in the assembly. There's a movement today in evangelicalism to kind of get away from organized churches and develop networks of house churches where people with regular jobs are just kind of doing the teachings and the pastoral ministry and they run everything and there's no vocational ministers. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, but functionally there usually tends to be some significant gaps. And one of the purposes of some of these house churches is to get away from the authority structure of things like denominations and leadership bodies. I, I typically, as a pastor, spend between about 24 and 36 hours pre uh, preparing a sermon for any given Sunday. Most of the time, uh, or most of the full-time pastors that I know spend roughly about as much time. And so your, your more well-educated pastors generally also have more resources available to employ during the study time because they've put the time into the rigorous study of, God word, so, of God's word. So they, they, you know, some of the language and stuff like that, they're able to work through a little bit more. But education is not a requirement in, by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, it often is, though, a very good contribution. I say that because Jesus here is a, a traveling rabbi. They didn't just put a random nomad on the teacher's bench, right? So yes, he's the adopted son of a carpenter. He would have known and worked in the trade. But through his adult years, he also became a respected teacher. He would have received the title rabbi only through training and ordination by other rabbis. But the teachings of Jesus were different than any other rabbi, any other teacher, or any other pastor today. John Calvin said this, he said, in short, the evangelists mean that, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John also, the evangelists mean that while the manner of teaching when then prevailed was so greatly degenerated and so extremely corrupted that it did not impress the minds of men with any reverence for God. The preaching of Christ was eminently distinguished by the divine power of the Holy Spirit, which procured for him the respect of his hearers. This is the power, or rather the majesty and authority, at which the people were astonished. So contextually, rabbis tended to rely on the authority of other teachers, as if their authority had been delegated to them, which would be kind of like the president's press secretary, right? The press secretary has zero political power. It just speaks for the president. And in a sense, I speak with a delegated authority too. My role as a pastor, I'm directly accountable to our elder team. 
But in teaching, I can't speak on my own authority, and I can't speak on the authority of the elders. I can only speak on the authority of the scriptures. Uh, it is only God's word which has that authority. So you'll see me quote authors, pastors, scholars, and others, and I love reading, and I love to quote them. In fact, I didn't share this first service. I love a quote by Spurgeon. He said, uh, he who reads not will never be read. He who quotes not will never be quoted. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves that he has no brain of his own. <laughs> you got to love Spurgeon, right? Um, but... But I, I use, I use uh, different authors and pastors and scholars and stuff because they either have some credibility in a particular area or uh, because they just simply said something very well, like Spurgeon. Uh, the authority of God's word comes from God and nowhere else. But Jesus here is speaking with the authority that none of us could ever claim. Nobody who fills this pulpit could ever claim this apart from Christ. He is the source of the authority that his words possess. He didn't just speak with the tone or attitude of authority. Uh, there was actual authority that existed inherently in the words that he spoke. They had tangible power. Uh, it would be enough if the source gave the words credibility, but because Jesus is the source of the words, the words themselves possessed actual authority. This is the second time in the same chapter that we see people astonished at his teaching. Astonishment seems to be a very common reaction, and in my opinion, a very appropriate reaction to the teachings of Jesus. Here's what R.C. Sproul said. They did not realize it at the time, but they were listening to sermons presented by the one who was the very incarnation of that truth and who had in himself the power of life that attended the proclamation of his word. There is power in God's word. We would be wise to be astonished by the scriptures as they are read and taught. I, I've read a lot of leadership books. Um, I have a lot of them on my shelf. Some of them I haven't bothered to read. Um, and I've been to, to countless leadership conferences. And I've noticed something in um, our churches today uh, that it... We tend to spend more time studying guys like Steve Jobs and Bill Gates and professional sports team owners, coaches, political leaders. Uh, you know, we spend more time with them than we do studying the scripture, what the scriptures teach us about leadership. Um, Kate Hughes said this. And I mean, listen, if a, guy could, if a guy could say, get thee behind me, Satan, and the person still follows him, that's a, that's a good leader, right? Kate Hughes said this. If the church is to have authority today, it must teach on the authority of God's holy word. 2 Timothy 2.15 Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. The words of Jesus possessed authority, amazed the people, and then, then something peculiar happens here. A demon-possessed man speaks up. The demon cries out through the man, challenging and mocking Jesus. This is satanic, right? It says in verse 33, Luke 4, 33. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean, unclean demon. He cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have, you ha what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? 
Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, we all have a tendency to be a little quiet when it comes to speaking about angels and demons. We don't want people to think we're weird or crazy, right? So we just kind of like, oh, angels and demons and Jesus. And, but we kind of keep that out of our vernacular a little, a, a little bit and we, we don't want to talk about it. You know, there's a, there's a song by the Black Crows called She Talks to Angels. Many of you have heard it. Uh, it's an epic tragedy where part of the chorus reads, says she talks to angels and they call her out by name. One verse says, she keeps a lock of hair in her pocket. She wears a cross around her neck. Yes, the hair is from a little boy and the cross from someone she has not met. Well, not yet. The song speaks of a woman who is caught in addiction and darkness in her life, but feels a that, that, that deep down she's a good person. It would seem that the angels are a, a figment of her imagination who exists to affirm her that she is not what everyone else sees when they look at her. She's not just a heroin-addicted waste of oxygen, but something special indeed. And the angels are the ones who give her that affirmation. In the song, the spiritual beings are imaginary but in real, reality, there are angels and demons all around us. And if that song's about a real woman, there's a Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ who died for her. I don't know if it's about a real person or not. If you've, if you've never read Screwtape Letters, the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis, any, how many of you have read that book, Screwtape Letters? Would you agree that that is an amazing book? Absolutely. I highly encourage you to read it. You can buy it for just a few bucks on Amazon or, or christianbook.com. Here's a line from the preface of the book from C.S. Lewis. Here, here's what he says. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased with both errors and hail a materialist or magician with the same delight. When we see statements like what we read in Luke 4.33, you might often hear that people of that period didn't understand mental illness and other brain disorders. So they would mistake various mental illnesses and things like epilepsy for demon possession. We're not ignorant today, so we know better, right? But here's the thing. There are different categories in the New Testament for illness and possession. Like, they knew. The people of Jesus' day were not Leanderthals who had to invent irrational ideas to explain what they couldn't understand. They knew. There was surprising academic sophistication in the first century Roman Empire. And, and demon possession was real back then, and it's real today too. I, I'm, I'm close to law, a, a law enforcement officer who said that um, on, on more than one occasion... Um, he's put somebody in the back of his police car that was fighting and, and just really out of control and that he felt like was demon-possessed. And so he would pray for that person. And that person would like instantly, either a voice would come out or something, and then they would just be calm and rational and perfectly po poised. Kind of weird. Well, not that weird if you read the Bible, but it's kind of weird. Uh, right? Now, uh, a number of years ago, I had a, a, a young man. I was very close to him. He's not a teenager anymore. He's in his 30s. But 
um, he was a close family friend, and, and he had begun getting into drugs and drinking, and, and, uh, and two of his friends one day called me in a panic, and they said they needed to see me right away, and so I, I met them somewhere, coffee shop or somewhere like that, and as they began to recount what happened, they, they were turning ghost white. They were, you could see it in their eyes. They were terrified and in shock. Well, it so happens that they had all begun drinking and smoking pot just a few, few days prior when this young man that I know stood up, his eyes rolled in the back of his head. He began speaking in some inhuman, demonic voice with like an inhuman bile just spewing from his mouth. Now, they both, both of these young men had the same account and told, about, told me about a, a period of several hours where he, he would act, act normal for a minute and then some kind of crazy demonic and, and getting to the point where he had told them that he had to deal with the devil and then later saying that he could no longer be their friend because the devil was going to make him kill them. Now, I was somewhat skeptical about this. I, I asked them about how high he had been and how high they were and what was going on. And one of the boys told me that he was a lifelong atheist, but there was nothing human or natural about what happened, that their friend was demon-possessed and that they would not have believed it had they not seen it with their own eyes. And over the years, this young man devolved into heroin addiction and committing some terrible crimes. There was never any kind of situation where uh, that I know of where somebody actually prayed for, prayed over him in, in the moment or did any kind of like exorcism or anything, that kind of thing. But I know that I prayed for this young man in tears night after night for years on end. And I believe that God heard my prayers and those of others. And I think it was kind of like that demon-possessed boy that, that Jesus' disciples had tried to help out and tried to cast out the demon, but the demon wouldn't come out. And then... Uh, they bring him to Jesus, and Jesus casts out the demon, and the disciples ask why they were not able to do it. And this is how Jesus answers in Mark 9, 29. Mark 9, 29, he says to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And the, the King James Version says, by prayer and fasting. And I, I think this is the situation with my friend, because after years of I think many people praying for him. He's now leading worship in his church. He's married to a beautiful young wife with a beautiful baby girl. He loves theology. He's a devoted Christian. And uh, there are a few people I know as thankful for God's grace as this young man. So, amen. And by the way, I did share the gospel uh, with those two young men that met with me. I don't remember who their, their names are. I wouldn't recognize them if I, I ran across them. But I, I shared the gospel with them. I did pray with them. I don't think they were ready to place their faith in Jesus. But the one was no longer an atheist. He knew. Um, and I'm sure the Holy Spirit was working in their lives. So I continue to pray for them. But uh, all of that to say, we need to be careful not to allegorize what we read in Luke. This is real history. I tend to be skeptical of, of if any of these kinds of things, but we need to be careful with that. We cannot study theology or the study of God without recognizing a vast world of unseen beings, angels and demons. They're usually invisible, but are nonetheless real and powerful. In fact, the New Testament speaks more of that than it does of love or sin. Here in Luke, the demon cries out with a loud voice. The Greek construction is where we get our word megaphone from, a very loud voice, right? And the demon cries out, ha, or go away, 
Leave us alone. I'm sorry. I talked to Justin Alfred on the phone this week and I, it came out. Some of you remember him. He's loud. It was an exclamation of displeasure. Sproul suggested that it was some sort of mockery or, or sneering that was taking place. What do you want with us? What, what do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? The demon knew who Jesus was, and it also knew that its days were numbered. In fact, in a similar account in Matthew 8, verse 29, it says, And behold, they cried out, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? They know their days are numbers. numbered. The demons know that their time will come to an end because Jesus is our great and victorious God. The word destroy in verse 34 uh, can mean to bring to an end or to bring to nothing. And what, so what power, what authority do we fear most? What power and authority do we respect most. It's interesting, those, those two young men who came to talk to me, they were petrified. I don't think I've ever in my life seen anyone so scared. And yet the law enforcement officer I told you about, not a fear, not once. Isn't that, isn't that incredible? Isn't that incredible? Because it's because we know as Christians, we know the one with authority, there's no reason to be afraid of any other power. And listen, again, I get really skeptical when I hear about supernatural things, right? And I imagine most of us, uh, most of what we hear from people probably is somehow manufactured or embellished. But we have to recognize that there is an unseen realm out there, and we need to be really careful with our skepticism. Do you find it interesting that last week the Nazarenes rejected Jesus? They denied who he was, but the demon here knows exactly who Jesus is? I want to I add a side note before we move to verse 35. And I'll, I'll start by asking you a question. Where was the demon-possessed man? In the synagogue. He was in the synagogue. The demon was in the synagogue. Think about that for a minute. I think we often have a tendency to try to isolate ourselves in the church because it's so much safer here, right? It's so much safer in here with all the little Christian friends. We're afraid to go there for, and then when we do, it's kind of this, for this like condescending form of evangelism that we do, right? We're, we're going out into the world, but we're going to come back. We're not, we're not going to really engage. We're just going to do Jesus over here, right? But the example of the apostles is to engage with the culture. Listen to this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians 9. For though, uh, Paul says, I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, <coughs> that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Now in order to do that, Paul had to set aside his impulse to answer every objection right off the bat. He also had to develop relationships with people who did not know or care about Jesus. And he would never have been able to do that if the people thought he had an agenda. 
that he only cared for the sake of his obligation to convert them. And he could only do that if he could lay aside his intentions for a time to actually get to know and to love the person aside from his eternal intentions. And the reason I say that is because we are not any safer from sin when we isolate ourselves in the church. Now, we might be safer from some forms of sin. But sin altogether, no. Demons don't just exist in the world outside of the church. This isn't the exorcist or poltergeist or any of those demonic movies where they like come up to a church like, no, I can't go in there. I'll catch fire. Like that's, that's not... That's not the way it is, right? They can attack us inside of these walls just as easily, particularly because not everyone in fellowship with the church is in a relationship with Jesus. And in fact, the synagogue in Nazareth was full of people who rejected Jesus. There's nothing magical about our real estate or our church directory that will shield us from the demonic. So we may as well obey the Great Commission and love those in the world around us by engaging with our culture. So that's my side note about the demon in the synagogue. So, and you can disagree with me about that. That's fine. Um, but I felt like it was an important piece here. Jesus doesn't answer the demon, nor does he reason with evil. He replies with a simple command, Out! Right? Jesus rebuked him saying, Be silent! Come out of him! And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. That was verse 35. Silence! Out! One little word shall fell him. You remember that? Jesus speaks with authority to the demon, and the demon responds. Now here, the demon had tormented the man, but didn't harm him, and the man was free. And so let me ask this, if that had been you, what would be your next steps? Well, Matthew 12 gives an illustration of just this, about demon possession. And this has always been a very confusing, if you look at Matthew 12, starting verse 43, it's always been a very confusing passage for me, and I think I get it now. Let's read it carefully. Matthew 12. When the unclean spirit has gone out of the person, it passes through the waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from where, which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the person is worse than the first. So also... So also will it be with this evil generation. Now you see, it isn't good enough to clean up your act. It isn't good, good enough to get rid of the evil if you don't fill the void with something good. In this illustration, the demon had left for some reason, we don't know, but when it did, find, when it did not find a more suitable subject, it returned. The house was unoccupied swept and put in order. John MacArthur noticed that it was a reference to moral and religious reform apart from true salvation. He said, ritual exorcisms and efforts at self-reform apart from true salvation will not free anyone from Satan's kingdom. 
It's Jesus who saves. Colossians 1, 13 and 14. Colossians 1, 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. See, once the evil is gone, the heart must be occupied by the Holy Spirit, not just cleaned up by religion. And it really is that simple. We could try to unpack verse 35 deeper, but I, I think I would just be talking for the sake of talking at that point. I, Jesus had the authority. He used the authority. The demon recognized the authority that he had, and it was done. How often do we fail to recognize the authority of our everlasting God? How often do we, do we pray like heaven is some sort of democratic kingdom, like we get a vote? Do we even know who we're addressing? Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Listen to this. This is who we're addressing. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Amen. Do we even know what Lord means? It indicates supreme power or authority. Let's move on to verse 36. Luke 4, 36. And they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. We, we've all noticed this. We, we've been fighting over masks and vaccines and mandates and social justice and all kinds of stuff. And in the church, we're struggling to remain unified with those whom we disagree with. I think the most important thing we need to know when it comes to unity is that we have to recognize that our battle is not with each other. Ephesians 6. Let's read that. Ephesians 6.10 through 13. Ephesians 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the day of evil, having done all to stand firm. Our Christian brothers and sisters are not our opponents. There is a very real an invisible enemy who wants to divide us. He wants us to believe that our anger toward each other is rational, reasonable, and principled. So we must ask, how can we demonstrate the grace that we have been given by Jesus in a way that neutralizes our enemy? And I believe the only way that happens is when we are leaning on the power and authority of Jesus. You know, it's, it's interesting. The strangers in Capernaum, uh, Capernaum. I used to say Capernaum because it kind of, in English, it would go that way. But I read it in the Greek and I realized, oh yeah, there's an am 
in there. So Capernaum. Uh, the strangers in Capernaum recognize the power and the authority of Jesus. The demon in Capernaum recognized the power and authority of Jesus. But last week we saw that those who knew him in Nazareth rejected his power and authority. In fact, they tried to launch him off a cliff. I wonder how many of us here are like, like me. Like I've been in the church for so long that I oftentimes fail to recognize the power of God in the fellowship of believers. Isn't that sad? I wonder how many of us take on the identity of a Christian, yet our hearts are numbed to the authority of Jesus in our lives. This is the danger. A prophet, without, a prophet is without honor in his own hometown. We saw that last week. Could that also apply to the church? The prophet is without honor in his own church. I wonder how many of us truly honor our Lord in the place that we've set aside to honor him. Lord, I pray it's all of us. And I know that I fail, so God forgive me. Our Lord Jesus is a God of all power and all authority. A couple of weeks ago, we discussed our ancient foe, the Prince of Darkness Grim, as Martin Luther called him. He is a truly seductive foe. He's active. We have absolutely reason to be concerned, but we have no reason to fear because we have also reason to be reminded of Jesus, the divine living word who has all power and all authority even over the evil around us. And so we sang these words a few weeks ago and I was just gonna, I was just gonna read them, but I, I'm gonna try to sing them. And I want you to sing with me Let's sing this, because it's so powerful. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. I know I'm terrible, but isn't that powerful? Isn't that a powerful statement? One little word shall fell him, the divine word, Jesus Christ, our Lord, the Son of God. The enemy knows his days are numbered. The demons know their days are numbered. But Christ Jesus has given us, those of us who love him, those of us who have repented of our sins and placed our trust in him, he has given us eternal life. Let's pray. Our holy God, we thank you that your authority is worth submitting to. We thank you that you are a sovereign God who loves those of us whom you have chosen and love so much that you gave, you love us so much that you gave your only begotten son to die in our place and to take our sins upon himself. God, we are sinners. We have not loved you with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And we have not loved our neighbors ourselves. And yet, our ancient foe is conquered through the faith and repentance that you've given us. 
God, grant to us repentance that we might live in you, filled with your Holy Spirit, and walking this earth holy, even as our Lord Jesus is holy. Lord, let us heap grace upon grace to our brothers and sisters as you have given us grace. God, we pray that you would defend us as we go therefore in obedience and we make disciples and bring them into our church and into the fellowship of baptism through the sound teaching of the truth that you have given us. Lord, we offer ourselves over to you as living sacrifices of praise as you lead us into our week and into our mission field. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.